I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about what is going on in Japan in the wake of the Abe assassination, what it means for Japan and the region, and what Japan's security concerns are going forward, we have with us one of our newest members of CSIS, Mr. Chris Johnstone. Chris is a senior advisor and the Japan chair at CSIS, and prior to joining CSIS, served in government for 25 years in a variety of senior positions with a focus on U.S. policy towards Japan and the Indo-Pacific. Chris twice served on the National Security Council, most recently under President Biden. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Really great to be here. So, Chris, we're talking on Friday, July 22nd, and it's been reported that Prime Minister Kishida's government has released a annual defense white paper, which talks about security concerns and it talks about the future of Japan's security establishment. Can you give me a sense of what the report says and why it's important? Yeah, this is a dynamic time in Japan's security policy, Andrew. You know, in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's really been a sense of alarm in Japan about the security environment around the country. And this has motivated a, an ambitious security agenda. You now see Japanese public support for increased defense spending, new kinds of capabilities like long-range strike, things that just a few years ago would have been pretty much off the table. So this fall, it's going to be a, uh, a dynamic time in the Diet and in, inside the Kante, the Prime Minister's office. They're going to be drafting a new national security strategy drafting a new national defense strategy, and looking at really significant increases in defense for the first time in a long time. So earlier this month, Chris, Prime Minister Kishida's governing coalition gained the two-thirds majority that is necessary to propose a constitutional amendment. Having this majority now established, does he have the political capital to truly reestablish Japan's military? Yeah, so he's he's got the votes on paper. But what I expect is going to happen is that they will start the process, start the deliberations on constitutional reform. But it's going to take a while to reach an actual consensus on language. There are actually multiple parts of the Constitution that various groups in Japan would like to see revised. There's language related to the environment, language related to education. So it's not just defense. This is going to take a, a bit of time. Second point I would make is even in the revisions to Article 9, this is the part of the Japanese constitution that addresses war, the use of force, etc. The only part of that article that they're thinking about changing relates to establishing the legitimacy of Japan's military. So the maritime self-defense force would become a navy. The ground self-defense force would become an army. And that's good, but it probably won't have any practical impact on how we work together. The policy issues that I've already talked about, the increases in defense spending, the new capabilities, that stuff's going to move forward and is potentially very significant for the alliance. But that's sort of separate and not connected to the constitutional piece. So I think it will take more time for the constitutional debate to proceed. And in the meantime, there's plenty of work we can do in the defense policy space today. So once they do actually move forward with this, because it sounds like the trains left the station, it's just a matter of time. How is China and South Korea going to react to this? Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. And I think there's no question that China is going to try to make hay of this. China is going to try to sow divisions in the region 
talk about a return to militarism in Japan, all the ghosts of the 1930s that are going to attempt to conjure up. I don't think they're going to be successful. First of all, if you look into Southeast Asia, for example, there's a regular poll that's done among Southeast Asian elites that asks, what countries do you trust the most? Japan ranks at the top of that list, higher than us, way higher than China. So I think, at least in Southeast Asia, the fears about a remilitarized Japan are, are not all that significant. Korea is a different story, right? The politics there are more complicated. There is more concern about Japan. I think it's, it's just going to be important for Japan to be transparent and communicate, explain to South Korea what's going on. Because at the end of the day, this is pretty normal stuff. And frankly, I think a trend in Japan that, that we should welcome because it will be good for stability in the region. I want to come back to Kishida and what he's trying to do because there's a host of other issues that are happening that he's dealing with. But Let's talk about the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. How did this happen in a country that doesn't have shooting deaths, doesn't have guns, doesn't have a gun culture? And why did it happen to a prime minister who was a divisive prime minister, but by many accounts was somewhat a principled politician? Yeah, so I view this as the act of a lone, mentally ill individual who at home made a, his own a handmade weapon that barely functioned, missed the first time he used it, hit the target the second time, and, and produced sort of the greatest tragedy in, in recent Japanese history. I think what happened reflects sort of the, the sense of safety and security in Japan. Abe's security detail was sort of nowhere to be seen. You'll note if you watch the video, the first shot, as I said, missed. There's a gap of probably a couple of seconds before the second one goes off. No one attempts to protect Abe in the meantime. And all that just re reflects, you know, th that this was unthinkable, truly unthinkable. I guess the other point I would make here is it also sort of makes the ironic point about how safe Japan is. In other words, in the United States, an individual like that would have had a much more high capacity weapon and would have done a lot more damage. There you had a guy who got lucky and perpetrated the greatest tragedy we can remember in Japanese history, but it was in many ways a fluke. What, what has it done to the psyche of the country? It's had a pretty profound shocking effect. It, it's raised questions both about the mental health of young people in the country, prompted sort of a discussion about how the country can do better at keeping people connected at a time when, with the COVID restrictions, with the way social media influences behavior, there are these groups of people in Japan that are sort of very isolated and disconnected from society. And this individual was one of them. So it's prompted that sort of debate, but it's also prompted a debate about the need to tighten up security, both at home in terms of the physical security of your leaders, but also against threats from the outside. I think it contributes to that debate that's reflected in the defense white paper, that Japan needs to be stronger and able to protect itself. Abe was clearly a huge figure in Japanese politics and in Japanese life. What is the legacy that he leaves behind? And what does the current government need to do to build on that legacy if they're interested in building on that legacy? Yeah, so I mean, in a nutshell, right, Abe gave Japan its mojo back. I mean, it's important to remember what the country was like in late 2012 when he took over. They'd had three years of weak, indecisive, uh, at moments incompetent 
leadership by the opposition. In the 2010 timeframe, there was a, an opposition prime minister who flirted with anti-Americanism, sought to undo some agreements related to our military presence in Okinawa. Very difficult time in the relationship. After the tsunami in 2011, widespread perceptions that that government mishandled the crisis. I think some of that's unfair. It was a pretty complex crisis, but sense of incompetence, weakness. Abe comes in late 2012 and basically says in a speech here at CSIS, Japan is back and immediately set to work on an ambitious agenda. He established a National Security Council. He passed national state secrets law. He passed legislation loosening restrictions on the Japanese military. He brought Japan into TPP and held it together after the United States pulled out. He launched an aggressive diplomatic strategy in the region. He called the free and open Indo-Pacific, seeking to build Japan's ties with India, with Southeast Asia, elsewhere. This was a guy with a plan and a big vision, and he leaves that legacy behind. Now, that's a tough act to follow, very tough act to follow. I will tell you honestly, Andrew, that a year ago, you'll recall he was replaced by Prime Minister Suga, who lasted a year and was sort of removed based on perceptions that he didn't handle the COVID pandemic very well, kind of muffed the Olympics. A little bit of that was unfair, but he, and he, he had bad year. hair also. Yeah, I'm sorry. He had bad hair as well. Super. He had bad hair also, right? <laughs> uh, you know, a year ago, so Kishide comes in a year ago, you know, I was writing memos in the White House saying we, we might need to be ready for a period of revolving door leadership in Japan. We can't be confident that there's going to be much stability here. Kishida has surprised everyone with his uh, effectiveness as a leader, particularly the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We can talk about that if you like. So he's and it is now in the wake of the elections on July 10th, positioned to be in power for several years. So steady, not the same kind of charisma, not the same kind of vision, but clearly trying to pick up the ball that Abe left on the field and carry it forward. And I think we can expect to see more of the same, maybe some adjustment in the slope and the trajectory, right? But the direction's not going to alter. I think that's where Japan is now. You know, I remember it well when Prime Minister Abe came to CSIS and famously said, Japan's back. A lot of us yeah. looked around at each other and said, well, we're not so sure Japan's really back. We clearly underestimated him at the time. Similarly, are experts underestimating Kishida? They definitely underestimated him early on. And I would candidly put myself to some extent in that camp. The pivotal moment really was his response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where without hesitation, he joined the sanctions that the G7 was imposing, including personal financial sanctions on Putin, which was a big deal. The export controls provided assistance to Ukraine, including a package of non-lethal military assistance, something Japan had never done before. And I mean, this is one way in which Kishida has distinguished himself from Abe. I mean, Abe was not a perfect guy, right? It's important to be clear about that. He had blind spots. The relationship with Russia was one of them. I was in a meeting in the White House in the Oval Office with the president in 2015, where they had a fairly scratchy conversation about Russia because Abe was reluctant to join to the same degree, the sanctions that were being imposed during that invasion of Crimea. So Kishida flipped the table on all that. He, he charted his own course, said he was going to side with the West, brought others in Asia along. South Korea, Singapore sort of followed in their wake. And Japan's paid a price for that, right? In terms of inflation, pressures on energy security, 
the end to these negotiations to resolve the Northern Territories territorial dispute, which is one of the drivers behind Abe's approach. So I think Kishida deserves deserves real credit. Maybe the last point I'd make on this, Andrew, I do think having Abe around was useful for Kishida. He was a foil. He served as a as a rationale for moving Japan slightly to the right on these national security issues. Without him there, Kishida is going to have more of a struggle managing his own party. And I can see some of these national security debates resulting in maybe in less ambition, more compromise outcomes, because Abe was such a force and could bring the rest of the LDP along with him, even though behind the scenes. Chris, you mentioned inflation. Japan is experiencing some really difficult inflation, just like we are here in the United States. What can Kishida do? Yeah, good, good question. I think this is this is his potential vulnerability. The growth in the the price increases going on, the collapse in the value of the yen. We haven't seen a yen at 140 to the dollar since the 1990s, I think. So this is this is a real inflationary dynamic. One of Abe, the features of Abe's economic policy was loose, loose money, print money to accomplish your goals, low interest rates by the Bank of Japan, just pump it into the economy. And that, and that supported a number of years of growth. I think Kishida is going to have to look at tightening, tightening the money supply. That may also impact his ability to spend on things like defense. And I think eventually the Bank of Japan is going to have to look at raising interest rates, although it declined to do so just this past week when it met. Let's talk about the Indo-Pacific legacy that you mentioned with that Abe left behind as a geopolitical concept. What In Abe's absence, how does the future of that relationship look like and will it alter the future of the region? Yeah, as I said, Abe had a, a very robust diplomatic agenda. Kishida has tried to keep that going and he has had a pretty impressive diplomatic pace. I mean, if you think about just uh, the last couple of months, for example, he hosted the Quad in Tokyo in May. He hosted President Biden for a bilateral meeting. I think he had 10 meetings with foreign leaders in the month of May, two trips. So this is a guy who almost five years as foreign minister, comfortable on the world stage, on top of his brief, substantive, is going to continue, I think, to push Japan's agenda. Again, he doesn't have the same charisma, but he gave a very good speech at the, at the Shangri-La Dialogue in, in Singapore in June. This was a speech where he famously said, Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. We all need to work together in this region to uphold the rules-based order that we hold so dear. So he's going to try to take it forward. He's not quite the figure Abe was. Can you tell us a little bit about the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework? We keep hearing about IPEF, how it was launched at the Quad Summit. What is it actually going to do? That is a great question, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so this is President Biden's regional economic initiative. And look, I think the way to think about it is that this is the compromise outcome between, frankly, the anti-trade voices inside the administration and the pro-trade, very traditional pro-trade voices inside the administration. So what do they end up with? They ended up with sort of a lukewarm, half-baked um, uh economic proposal that I think has the potential to, to make some positive impact in the region, but is not going to offer things like real market access to the United States that our main partners want. It will focus on issues like 
supply chain resilience, decarbonization in infrastructure, on taxing corruption, some digital issues. And I think there's some real work that can be done there. But there's no question that it falls well short of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The last point I make on this is as lukewarm as it may be, Japan has played a vital role in making it as successful as it is. It was Japan and Kishida who helped rally support among uh, in Southeast Asia for it. Something like 14 countries, I believe, are now members, including most of ASEAN. That wouldn't have happened without without Kishida himself. So the Japanese voice in all this is important. And my hope is that once the negotiations get started, maybe that we'll get more ambition that results in more significant outcomes. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's going to get closer to TPP and what the spirit of TPP was all about? It depends on whether the United States is able to actually go so far as to off make market access offers and commitments in the region. At this point, I don't see the politics as supporting that here. It's possible. I hear some people argue that after the midterm elections, that maybe there's a brief window before 2024 when you could get some more ambition on U.S. trade policy, a coalition, if you will, between free trade Democrats and China hawks. But the trade discussion is difficult in the United States. And so I think we're more likely to, to settle for sort of incremental and important, but not path-breaking agreements on individual issues under IPEF. Let's talk about the Japan-India relationship. You know, of course, Prime Minister Abe spent his career cultivating a strong Japan-India relationship. What will Kishida do to manage the relationship moving forward? Yeah, Kishida has also picked that up and emphasized it. Again, he hosted as part of the Quad, Prime Minister Modi was in Tokyo. So I think this emphasis on India will continue. I do think that there has been disappointment in how India has responded to the war in Ukraine. I think there was hope that there would be more significant movement away from ties with Russia on their part, and there really hasn't been. But I think Kishida shares with the Biden administration a view that this is a long-term play. The Quad process itself will serve to slowly pull India away from its traditional roots and into sort of... Um, you know, our concept of a free and open Indo-Pacific. But it's gradual and it requires a lot of patience, that's for sure. There, there's another deal that we should be talking about, I think at least briefly. And this is the India-Japan-Australia Supply Chain Resiliency Initiative, sometimes called SCRI. Is there potential to expand on it with other ASEAN nations? Yeah, this is part of the proliferation of these efforts related to supply chain resilience, right? You see these popping up in a number of places. As I said, it'll be part of the IPEF agenda as well, where we're starting next week, for example, the United States and Japan are, are convening the first ever ministerial economic two plus two. So this is trade ministers and foreign ministers and secretary of commerce and secretary of state getting together to talk about issues like supply chain security. So I think the, the task really is to begin to think about how you consolidate and bring together all these different conversations and efforts that are going on. The U.S. has a separate one with Australia as well, focused on critical minerals. So there needs to be some rationalization of these efforts, I think. We're not included in the SCRI, correct? That is my understanding, yes. But as I said, we have other dialogues with all of those partners, either collectively or separately, that address a similar set of issues. Let's talk about the Korea-Japan relationship. 
Yeah. Where is that and where do you see it going in the immediate future? This too, I would say, was one of Abe's blind spots. I think it's fair to say he did great things early on in his tenure through sort of the 2015-16 timeframe to rebuild the relationship with Korea, including signing a comfort women agreement that resulted in compensation for some of the, the living women. But then, it, you know, a new administration came in and South Korea sought to revisit those issues. They came back to the fore. Basically, Abe abandoned any effort to maintain a, a positive relationship with South Korea. And I think in that sense, frankly, maybe undervalued the importance of the relationship. I think the good news now is that there is a big opportunity with President Yoon taking office in May in, in Korea, as clearly indicating that he wants to improve ties Prime Minister Kishida open to doing so as well. We had the trilateral leaders meeting in Madrid as part of the NATO summit. Biden, Yoon, Kishida met together. Lots of meetings at the foreign minister level, even at the defense minister level. My hope is that they can get going on a pragmatic, practical agenda in those areas. But I do think the historical issues are going to take time to resolve. They're sensitive on both sides. Resolution's not going to be quick. And I, I hope that they can get enough momentum on the practical agenda side to buy time to resolve the historical issues. But it's going to be tricky. I think the political will is there, but, but these are hard issues that we shouldn't underestimate. Chris, thank you very much for all these valuable insights. A lot to unpack here with Japan and the, our ongoing relationships, what's going on in Japan and in that region. Thank you so much for your insights today. Thanks, Andrew. Great pleasure to join you today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 